it's madness compiled and topping madness and to superimpose it on a subject that is already so riddled with nonsense or the perception of nonsense does no one any good at all. Ladies and gentlemen, we And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. You know, on this program, we have celebrated a lot of folks who helped me out as I made my way through Esoterica over the last five years. Stan Friedman, my first ever interview, Jim Mars, the guy who really lit the fuse for my interest in the world of the paranormal and parapolitical, but one guy who I don't think I've heaped enough praise on here on BOA Audio is our guest this week, Peter Robbins. Let me digress for a moment and share a little story with all you great folks out there. When I first started out in the world of esoterica, I was just like all you, I was a radio listener, book reader, web surfer, wasn't really involved in the scene to the extent that I am now, for better or for worse. And I attended the 2004 X Conference in Washington, D.C. as my first convention, real close to Boston, which most of you know is the home base of BOA. It was star-studded, packed with a ton of esoteric superstars, but it was a little disconcerting because there was certainly a barrier between the stars and the fans, for lack of a better term. But at the end of the weekend, as I was getting ready to leave, all the presentations were done and all that good stuff was all wrapped up. People were already starting to head to the airport. I still had another day at the hotel. Down there at the hotel bar is Peter Robbins and another fan that I made friends with over the course of the weekend. So not some superstar, but just some person who was in the audience. We hung out for quite a while and really hit it off from there. And as I say to a lot of people, if Peter Robbins hadn't been so friendly, hadn't been so welcoming, hadn't been so gregarious at the end of that weekend, I may have just walked away from Esoterica and kind of thrown my hands up at the whole scene. So he sort of gave me that boost that I needed to really commit myself to the world that is BOA and BOA Audio. So hats off to Peter Robbins. He is the man, and that's why he's back here on the program. I've digressed quite a bit. What I'm trying to say is Peter Robbins really is a great guy and somebody who is just supremely helpful to so many people in the world of ufology and a serious behind-the-scenes player, as you'll come to find out here on this week's edition of the program. Let me sort of rein it in here now (laughs) and tell you about what we're going to be talking about here on the show. This past summer, Peter wrote a paper called Politics, Religion, and Human Nature, Practical Problems and Roadblocks on the Path Toward Official UFO Acknowledgement, and he presented it at the 2009 MUFON Symposium. It's a really thought-provoking piece which looks at serious problems 
which may arise in a post-UFO disclosure world. A lot of problems that you just normally don't hear about from the pro-disclosure folks. Peter has been amazingly kind enough to allow us to carry the PDF version of the paper, Politics, Religion, and Human Nature, Practical Problems and Roadblocks on the Path Toward Official UFO Acknowledgement on BenAllOfAmerica.com. So if you're listening to this right now, go to the website, BenAllOfAmerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and check out the show page or the index page. You'll be able to find the linkage to Peter's paper pretty easily. It's kind of a companion to this interview. It works in concert with this discussion, and Peter really wants folks to read this. So go to BOA, grab a copy of the PDF. If you have to, pause the interview and do it now. Read it and come on back. This show will be here, you know, forever, so don't worry about it. Now that you have uh, read the paper, presumably, or you're steadfastly not going to, that's cool, I guess, let me give you a preview of what we're going to be talking about, because the whole thing really centers around that paper. Here are sort of the big points we're going to touch on in the conversation. The disclosure movement, the exopolitics scene, Peter's going to reflect on working on the UN UFO meeting of 1978, will muse about the issues surrounding how UFO disclosure would affect religion, most notably religious fundamentalists, will ponder the unique schism which may arise on Earth if UFO disclosure took place, and towards the end of the interview it gets a little more jam session-y as Peter shares some advice for newcomers to the field of ufology, and will explore his work with local communities to help them realize the benefits of embracing their UFO roots. It's really an enlightening conversation. I like to think of Peter Robbins as one of the great thinkers in the field of ufology, and I think you're going to get the same impression after you hear this interview. He really puts a lot of thought into what he's saying. He's a very deep mind that is examining the UFO question, and I think we're all a little bit better off for that. Before I roll into the bio, I'm going to give you a heads up. As you may have noticed here from my voice, we have gotten our old equipment back, so BOA Audio is running at full steam once again. But this interview was taped with the quote-unquote new equipment that only lasted about a week and stunk out the joint. Even though I got a lot of emails from people who seemed to think the intro last week was pretty good, I thought it sounded like a fart in a mitten, but thankfully we're all set now. Nonetheless, we did tape this interview with that recorder, but I think the sound quality is up to snuff for the most part. It's a little rocky there in the first 10 minutes. Bear with us, but it settles into a nice groove after that, and I think you're not even going to know the difference between the two recorders at that point, I hope. And now let me do the bio for Peter Robbins so I can get you on your way to this conversation. Peter Robbins has been involved in UFO studies for more than 25 years as a researcher, investigator, writer, lecturer, activist, and author. He's a board member of the Bud Hopkins Intruder Foundation and is co-author of the British bestseller Left at Eastgate, a first-hand account of the Bentwaters-Woodbridge UFO incident, its cover-up and investigation. Robbins has lectured extensively both in the United States and abroad, including dozens of talks throughout the United Kingdom. Ventures have included local, national, and international conferences, as well as presentations for organizations, seminars, private groups, public, private, and secondary schools, universities, libraries, scientific organizations, educational foundations, and Cambridge Hospital in Boston under the sponsorship of the late Pulitzer Prize winner, Dr. John Mack. His lecture topics have included but have not been limited to the United Kingdom's 
RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge UFO Incident, the Suppression of UFO Information by the American and British Governments, James Vincent Forrestal, First Secretary of Defense and Early Casualty to UFO Secrecy, the Emergence of the National Security State, Dr. Wilhelm Reich in UFOs, the UFO Abduction Phenomenon, the Crop Circle Phenomenon, and the Media and UFOs. He has served as Art Director and Investigator for the New York City-based Scientific Bureau of Investigation, SBI, a national police and civilian UFO research organization, and as Editorial Assistant on the requested Blue Memorandum for Parliament's House of Lords debate on UFOs in January of 1980, and served as a research assistant on the United Nations Secretary General's report for the establishment of a UN UFO department. How about that for a resume, my friends? This guy is a powerhouse, and to a man, if you talk to a lot of folks in the world of ufology, the guy is beloved. So I'm excited to be bringing him back here on the program. Have some exciting news, which Peter will sort of lay out on to you at the end of the show. Let's just leave it at this. This will not be Peter Robbins' last appearance on BOA Audio here in Season 5. You're going to be hearing a lot more from Peter Robbins as BOA Audio continues onward here through Season 5, 6, 7, and into the future. I've talked enough here at the beginning of the show. Let's rock and roll, my friends. This interview was recorded on January 19, 2010. Peter Robbins delving into the problems of UFO disclosure on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Ben All of America Audio. I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time here. I had the really great pleasure of spending quite a bit of time with our guest here, Peter Robbins, for a whole weekend this past October, and it was really an enjoyable time. And uh, He stayed at my house for the Mass Mystery Weekend, spent time with my family. It was really uh, the kind of weekend that you just end up becoming friends for life afterwards, so... To bring him back here on the show is a great pleasure for me, and I'm excited to uh, talk to him here about this paper that he presented this past summer at the MUFON Symposium. Peter, thank you for coming back on the show. You were on way back in Season 1, and it's been way too long since you've been on the program, but it's great to have you back here on BOA Audio. Hi, pal. Good to be back with you. We're going to be talking about this paper you presented at the MUFON Symposium, but I suppose before we get into that, let's just do sort of the requisite update on what you've been doing. Last year was one of those years where uh, I was just very proud to um, make my full living doing this work. It is a absolutely crazy career choice, so keep your day jobs, kids, and do <laughs> an avocation. But there are a few of us that are actually managing to uh, pay our bills with it and take great pride in the work that we're doing. I think I had more speaking dates last year than I had since Left at Eastgate came out um, in its first edition and was a bestseller in the United Kingdom. And I've been working away at uh, lining up speaking engagements for this year, which is uh, often the way I end and begin the year. In fact, uh, it's de-rigor if you want to uh, uh, have the work. I guess um, the major things right now that are going on with me is gearing up again for uh, my work with the city of Roswell, New Mexico. I have the distinct honor of, of being a consultant and advisor to the city through the mayor's office um, on matters UFO and being the city's liaison with uh, the research community, uh, with the governor's office on, on these subjects and um, helping them to put together the very best conference that we can every year as part of their huge 4th of July four-day 
uh, UFO Festival, which uh, I have a hand in as well. So we're back to our regular conference call committee meetings, even though I'm 1,800 miles away through the wonders of Skype and telephonic communication. I can keep that going. This paper that you're referring to um, had been percolating away for some time with me. Um, I think often we feel that the things that are going to get you up and going and contributing are things that are... Uh, you know, you're passionate about in a positive way, but sometimes the things that irritate you can be an equal source of inspiration <laughs> yeah. and um, good research because you're compelled to get out there and make your points. Ufology, like so many uh, fields of research and endeavor, uh, always come with a few sacred cows. And um, uh, I have many friends, colleagues, people that I like, admire, and respect who uh, support the idea of our government um, declassifying and, and distributing information that is formally kept from us. But I feel that um, the disclosure movement per se is pursuing these matters uh, in a somewhat naive way and, and ways and a, man, a manipulative one. I also have problems uh, that I really had not articulated with the so-called exo-political movement, which I think is just getting wackier and, and more far-fetched as it moves forward. And again, I have to stress here that I think there are some wonderful people in the field, but that you know nobody is exerting any kind of quality control or vetting of the information that is coming out under its name. Uh, but probably uh, the most tippy-toe around kind of topic without mentioning it is ufology and religion. Uh, in particular, the uh, ideas put forward by the fundamentalist Christian UFO research community, uh, people in, in that community who are also um, friends and colleagues, but who I could not disagree with more on certain points. So this paper really was kind of an amalgam of um, these three subjects and beginning by reviewing and looking at what I call um, the ridicule factor yeah. uh, and how it impacts on the most powerful people that in good faith try to do something to advance the cause of openness but in fact ultimately get taken down uh, and nobody is too big. I'm really, really gratified with a lot of the responses to this paper. I, I think it's one of the better things I've written in some years. And the paper that you have posted and that um, I invite your listeners to read online and even download. Uh, this is one of those times when, you know, you just say, I want this to get out there. And, um, you know, I was paid to give the paper in a much more condensed version because it, it runs 25 pages with dozens of annotations. So, you know, I'm sure people, while they're listening, can even go online and check out your website. The linkage is right there on the website right now for folks who are listening to this interview, and, and we highly encourage you to go and download it. And, you know, if you want to pause the interview, go read it and come back because we're going to be talking about it here. It's sort of a interactive way, I guess you could say, uh, that we're doing the interview, but the information in the paper is outstanding, and I want people to 
to read it because uh, then they'll kind of know what we're talking about here. And as you know, Tim, um, I've asked you what I ask uh, any of the radio hosts whose shows I appear on to not mince around with your questions. Hit me with your best shot. I know you've read the paper and you're familiar with the information in it. So let's get down to business and let me know what you want to address. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we'll start out, I guess, just first with something that you told me about when you were writing the paper is that you purposely went out of your way not to use the word disclosure in the paper, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting because the term, as as you put it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been kind of co-opted by the exopolitical movement now, where now it carries all kinds of baggage, uh, the word disclosure. So Yeah, when I, I first wrote the paper, um, uh, the word was included regularly because it's a perfectly good word, and if you go to uh, any standard thesaurus, good luck finding synonyms for it. The closest you can get pretty much is you know, declassification, release, and dissemination of information, which is uh, more of a tongue tire than disclosure. And I'll be more specific here, and if I step on toes, so be it. The exopolitical movement aside, um, the disclosure movement is most strongly associated with the work of Dr. Stephen Greer. Now, I admire uh, what Dr. Greer was able to do uh, in 2000 bringing a number of respected uh, former military UFO witnesses or folks who were in the military with an awareness of how serious this subject is, a number of distinguished retired military and commercial pilots, people whose very jobs are at risk if they dare talk about a sighting they may have had or even if they take the subject seriously. But I find um, uh, CSETI to not be an open uh, area for an exchange of information, but very closed, very uh, cautious, guarded, and more cult-like than um, anything that I can associate in, in current mainstream ufology. At the same time, um, I think Dr. Greer has done an amazing job of building uh, you know, this system, so to say. But that word disclosure, for those of us that are interested and involved in UFO studies, it's like saying um, Kleenex um, and you know people are talking about a tissue or in England where they call vacuum cleaners Hoovers. That is the standard name for it. Maybe I'm oversensitive uh, about specific words and the use of language, but I'm a writer and that's that's my life. Uh, a good part of it in any case. So, um, yes, I rewrote the paper um, after uh, it had been um, presented and um, simply dropped the word more or less on a philosophical point, um, but not in any way because it's a, a bad word. It's a wonderful word. Exactly, yeah. It's just uh, they've taken the word as their own thing, so it's kind of like, like you said, it, it carries so much baggage with it that i salute them for their being able to do it <laughs> exactly yeah yeah well like uh like we were saying on uh the radio mysterioso show you know they've yes. they've done a good job of branding yeah, we'll give them that the excellent yes, well said i think that's the perfect term and uh i had said on the paratopia show when i appeared like uh last month you know and i think you can probably kind of be in agreement with me on this you know i have no problem with the people in the exopolitics movement specifically but absolutely at the end of the day it's sort of like um the reverse of the expression, greater than the sum of their parts. You know, yeah. it's sort of like less than the sum of its parts. You get you them know, all together um, and somehow it's, it's you know, it falls off the rails. Let me uh, slightly uh, revise my uh, agreement there. Um, <laughs> and, 
you know, um, I, I hold no animosity. Um, I just call it like I see it. Um, Alfred Weber, who is, or Weber, however his name is pronounced, who is certainly a leading figure in exopolitical work, has been going to my way of thinking further and further out in terms of making claims that I don't feel can be substantiated or uh, uh, cleverly playing games with um, ideas and thoughts. I, I had kind of a double-take experience a few weeks ago when uh, I received an emailing with an article discussing the fact that not releasing UFO information uh, under the Obama administration in their first year was the biggest story that was not being dealt with by the press that year. <laughs> it was literally Orwellian in its double-speak qualities. Um, and so many people, most of whom I think should know better, uh, who are caught up in uh, this area of UFO studies, have been touting for months and months that disclosure, so to say, was right around the corner. It would certainly be coming by this autumn and count on it to happen by New Year's. And of course, as is almost always the case when one makes outlandish predictions like that, you'd simply caught with egg on your face. And most of the folks that make those uh, admonitions hope that it doesn't stick, people forget, and that they can start with a whole new line of semi-nonsensical uh, claims and allegations as the new year begins. Yeah, that seems to be the case. They just hope people will forget about it. What you're saying kind of raises an interesting point that I picked out of the paper mm. and made me think uh, because it sort of was in line with what I had thought too. And I'll quote you here. You say, uh, my guess is that taking the time from their busy schedules to study the evidence supporting UFO reality holds a low priority for the overwhelming majority of current office holders, and that's in regards to Congress. Mm -hmm. That perfectly resonated with what I've been sort of thinking too lately, is just that there's sort of these like different school of thought in some ways that I find to be completely illogical or, or naive maybe at best, or looking at things through UFO-colored glasses where yeah. some people in the exopolitical movement, and we're not going to beat on them, it's, it's just, no. you know, um, seem to think that in the halls of Washington that the UFO issue is like the number one priority to all these people when I find that to be seriously, seriously uh, illogical and unbelievable. Yeah. You know, Tim, um, this past November, I, I gave two papers um, at Ryan Wood's always well-produced uh, crash retrieval conference. And as always in the, I think, uh, five out of seven years that I've presented there, um, I really don't deal with crashes or retrievals. And Special thanks to Ryan for allowing me to go my own way, but both were fairly personal and reflective. One was about uh, the 1989 Voronezh uh, incident in the Soviet Union, um, which uh, was absolutely slaughtered by uh, the Western press, but still stands out as a truly anomalous series of events that have never been uh, addressed fully here in America. The other was about my memories of um, being, well, much like you were a couple of years ago, a young, idealistic, very excited to be involved on some level um, in the UFO research community and having gotten myself um, a job as uh, an assistant editor on a paper that was uh, being prepared for then uh, United Nations Secretary General Kurt Waldheim 
uh, on the UFO situation, specifically for uh, a series of meetings by the Special Political Committee of the United Nations General Assembly in 1978. Uh, my salary for this job was not monetary at all, <laughs> but I was so excited to have a hand in it, and I was able to attend the relevant meetings and sit there and hear what I thought and hoped might be history in the making, but indeed watched and heard fascinating information presented by extremely significant people and then followed its course over the months to follow as it died quietly in committee. The reason I bring it up is because it was an extraordinary lesson in human nature. Uh, almost more than UFO studies. Uh, New York was pretty socked in with a, a pretty major blizzard that weekend. And I think quite a number of United Nations representatives used it as a, a convenient excuse to stay in their cushy apartments and not venture out into the snow and try and make their way across town to the United Nations complex. But those that were there who heard Dr. Hynek and Dr. Vallee and Stanton Friedman and a number of other real established experts uh, on this subject. A statement by Gordon Cooper, a very courageous astronaut, very outspoken in his views about this. I spent a good deal of time studying the faces of these representatives from around the world. And at one point, remembering our chronology here, this was November of 78, so it was about six weeks after what was arguably uh, certainly one of the most memorable and maybe the most dramatic uh, case of the year, which was the disappearance of a young private pilot off the coast of Australia named mm -hmm. Frederick Valentich. Oh, yeah. And at one point, and I couldn't tell you who was speaking at the time to save myself, but they spun around and they pointed directly at the uh, UN representative from Australia and said something to the effect of, uh, you know, Mr. Representative, one of your citizens seems to have been kidnapped. He is possibly dead. Um, there is no question that laws have been broken here, your laws and international laws. How can you just sit there? And, and the man, his face was implacable. All these guys, I wouldn't want to play poker with any of them. You know, they held every single muscle in place, but the deepest impression I got coming off of this guy was murderous. How dare you single me out or bring attention to me on something obviously so goofy and idiotic and, you know, tarred and feathered with nonsense. Can you imagine any of these people going back to their uh, governments and saying, you know, I think we need to get to work on this UFO question, set up a permanent study committee when the potential for their cushy job and nice apartment and expense account uh, might well be yanked out from them um, if they felt they did take this seriously. So uh, it is something, this ridicule factor, that is so deep and so ingrained and so destructive. Um, something either extraordinary will have to happen before we can begin to get around it, or we're going to need a lot more courageous people who are willing to, with reputations uh, uh, that are worthy of respect and something to lose, who have the courage for any number of reasons to take a shot and put their reputations on the line. Again, I said pretty much everybody that uh, does this, whether they're president or premier or just in any powerful position who has 
taken that side, sooner or later backs off. But there are a few noteworthy exceptions, and two of my favorites, uh, who were at different ends of the polar political spectrum, although I think, in fact, uh, they would have agreed on more than not, was Barry Goldwater, who was a uh, Air Force Reserve General and took this subject deadly seriously and felt X number of UFOs, truly anomalous ones, did represent extraterrestrial reality. And the late and very courageous um, congressman from New Mexico, Stephen Schiff, who uh, died uh, much too young, but who went to Washington with a mandate from more than 90% of the uh, New Mexican voters who had put him there to try to get to the bottom of, among what other things, what had actually happened uh, on the plains outside of Roswell, New Mexico, that summer of 1947. Exactly, yeah, and you, you make a great point uh, in the paper, too, just about how this really is political suicide. I love the Joe Biden quote you have in there, too. <laughs> oh, my Let's see God. if I can pull that up really quick. Okay, yeah, I have three quotes at the beginning of the UFOs and politics, if you don't mind, I'll just read them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it's time to open the books on questions that have remained in the dark on the question of government investigations of UFOs. It's time to find out what the truth is that's out there. We ought to do it because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth, and we ought to do it because it's the law. John Podesta, now Presidential Advisor Podesta. Next quote um, is uh, the Biden quote, and then I'll read the President's quote. I've never met Dennis Kucinich, and I don't know Governor Richardson. No, I don't think there are UFOs. No, I don't think the government... What the hell are we talking about? This has gone downhill real quick. <laughs> that was Senator Joe Biden, now Vice President Joe Biden, and then Barack Obama, uh, now President Obama. Uh, the quote, he hasn't said a lot about this, but his quote is, uh, you know, I don't know, and I don't presume to know. What I do know is that there is life here on Earth and that we are not attending to life here on Earth. Well done, Mr. President. But... <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, uh that 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 Biden quote is a peach. <laughs> yeah, I really yeah, that had me cracking up when I saw it. <laughs> and uh well, ironically, yeah, the the Obama quote kind of speaks to uh, a Freudian slip that Stan Friedman made when we were doing an interview recently where he How said so? he meant to say uh foreclosures but instead he said disclosure. <laughs> sort of ties into the idea. Now it's kind of, I'm trying to make it my new catchphrase now yeah. maybe where you know, I'm a little more concerned about foreclosures than disclosure at this mm. point. So we'll see. <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> Only because, you know, I'd like to have a place to live at the end of the year, uh, uh, yes, whether the aliens are here or not. <laughs> yeah, I um, think uh, they're going to be uh, assisting in that. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about the Peters ETI Religious Crisis Survey, because I'd never heard about this before, mm. and you, you cited in the paper, and it's pretty remarkable uh, study – I found was interesting. We'll, we'll get to the the fundamentalist religious aspects in a moment. But what I found that came out of this study was that, and uh, I guess I'll quote you again here, so I don't uh, botch this. But uh, the survey found that, for the most part, religious people do not fear contact. But somewhat surprisingly, a second finding was that the majority of non-religious respondents were the ones most concerned about such a crisis occurring. Yes. Um, the Peters ETI Religious Crisis Survey uh, you refer to was undertaken by Reverend Ted Peters and his associate Julie Froelich. Um, it was published, actually, in a kind of a compendium version in the September 
2008 issue of the MUFON UFO Journal, but I, I know the full version is available with uh, modest search. It was actually published under the title, uh, Is Extraterrestrial Life a Threat to Religion? Which is something which uh, has been on many people's minds on and off over the decades since uh, the advent of the modern age of UFO sightings. In part, this goes back to um, a Brookings Institute report prepared for the Air Force classified uh, report, which is long declassified now, which reflected on the implications of contact. And they theorized, um, uh, based on anthropological models and um, concerns exhibited by uh, mass panic by certain members of uh, the populace uh, following the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast the night before Halloween in 1938, that there was a potential for panic if people felt that more technologically advanced uh, beings from parts unknown were to come here. Uh, for me, uh, I look at more earthly models that are absolutely valid here. Uh, look at the British penetration into the heart of Africa in the 1870s, and you'll see anecdote after case history after study of this most first world civilization uh, facing off for the first time with very proud but what we would call primitive people in terms of their technology and uh, access to uh, tools and more sophisticated manners of expression. And there's a famous quote that Carl Jung uh, includes in his book, Flying Saucers, where he is discussing the implications of contact in this sense with um, uh, a first world culture uh, and a guy that I guess we would call in common parlance uh, a witch doctor in referring to their reaction, the tribe or the civilization's reaction when confronted for the very first time with military hardware and refined metals and, you know, soldiers in uniform and all kinds of hardware and demonstrations of power, our dreams died. Going back to the religious idea, um, for many folks, the thought that the Old Testament and the New Testament are the one and only uh, windows into what God wants us to do and wants for us and the way that we have to live our lives. And that is uh, a number of fundamentalist friends have and, and people that I've met who follow a Christian fundamentalist path have said, talking to me, um, I know that there are no aliens or extraterrestrials as you discuss them from other planets because there is no reference to them uh, in the Old or New Testament when I uh, might try to bring up Ezekiel uh, or a number of other fascinating accounts that appear in the Old Testament or, or certain aspects of the New Testament, they're simply rebuffed because it's a very literal, very unbending, and very narrow interpretation with all due respect to folks uh, who are devoted to um, this way of, of worshiping. And the reality here is that although uh, much to the surprise of many of us who um, do think about this subject, that most people 
who follow major organized religions are also, you know, out there in the real world as well, have given this some thought. And the implications here are that um, the fear that if we knew that there were aliens in space coming and going and other intelligent beings, it would throw uh, organized religion into a crisis mode because many things might be open to interpretation. There is no literal reference, certainly in the Old Testament that I'm familiar with, to um, aliens and extraterrestrials. So where do you go from there? For some people who are very much opposed to a lot of the philosophical underpinnings of uh, the ancient astronaut theorists, mm -hmm. whether or not they be populists like Eric von Daniken or true scholars like Zachariah Sitchin. Um, the idea that has been put forward by a number of folks in this field and by anthropologists as well is that religion in part was created to try to explain phenomenology and the unexplainable. And that, in fact, if there have been comings and goings of other intelligences from wherever since time immemorial, and I feel that I'm convinced certainly that this has been going on for millennia, was that something that impacted on or affected or shaped in any way the great religions of the world and religious thinking? That is not just a travesty, it's absolute heresy. Uh, in the minds of, I'm sure, millions of people on this planet, and they might well have a problem with it. At the same time, for agnostics or atheists or those of us born into different religious traditions who are not particularly religious in the formal sense, some of our concerns have been going with what what's going to happen to the Catholic Church, or the Jews going to freak out, or, you know, the, the Mormons or any other group within Christianity or Hindus or Buddhists. And what we see fairly solidly um, put together from this very careful survey is, no, you know, folks have sleepless nights, and ultimately we human beings are pretty remarkable in our ability to uh, reshape ourselves, reinvent ourselves, adjust, acclimatize to uh, extreme changes in our surroundings, and I guess you could say by extension philosophical surroundings. We'll get through this, but our concerns... Uh, as, you know, the concerns of people who are more or less religious outsiders, that religion would go into crisis, seem not to be justified here, which I, I think is reassuring. However, um, what does seem to be a problem is how fundamentalists, and I don't single out Christian fundamentalists here, but fundamentalists um, who are Jewish, um, who are Muslim, how they will deal with this because the term itself denotes extremely strict literal interpretation of your holy text. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it may be a big problem for physicists too, to whom in a secular way it might as well be, you know, a religious understanding that it can't be, therefore it isn't. But if it is, I got a problem. Exactly. Yeah. Fundamentalism certainly can extend to the scientific realm as well, of which course. we've seen quite a bit. Now, Speaking of religious fundamentalists, you you reference a, a, another gem from our from our friend uh, Pat Robertson this time regarding space aliens and and uh, his take on people that believe in them. I'd never heard this story before. Yeah. So when I read it in the paper, I was like, "What? This is insane that someone would say this." Yes. 
but apparently he did. So I guess tell that story because uh, I'm yeah. sure a lot of people haven't heard it yet. Well, um, in fact, I was mentioning to you before we actually uh, began to record our program um, that I was uh, doing some rewriting on an article I had written a bit more than 10 years ago on UFOs and intolerance that was inspired by uh, this story, so to say. And it's fairly cut and dried. Um, the 700 Club, a uh, widely aired religious television show on uh, the Christian Broadcast Network, I believe, had a show. Uh, now it's, gosh, it's more than a dozen years ago. It was aired in July of 1997. And at the time, the biggest thing going on in our terrestrial space program was the Mars Pathfinder mission. And somehow or other, it became part of the discussion between Pat Robertson, who was and may still be the head of the Christian Coalition, I'm not sure, a very well-known televangelist and former presidential candidate of the United States, he stated that, um, well, the, the discussion shifted from the, the Mars mission to the possibilities of aliens from space and UFOs. And it was then that Robertson stated that it was his firm belief that even if they were real, such aliens were really demons and minions of the devil whose intention was to lead people of Earth away from the teachings of Christ. And his opinion allowed for no possibility that any actual space alien had ever made its way to Earth, even for a brief little visit. Uh, in fact, he felt the situation was so grave that those who actually believed that space aliens were real should be put to death by stoning. Now, that's absolutely shocking, but I don't know... Um, for people like me, it was no less shocking to hear such a, I don't know, a, a ridiculous, overblown claim that would have been laughable if it wasn't so tragic in terms of its inappropriateness, insensitivity, and I feel total wrongness that uh, the reason that uh, the people of Haiti were hit with this terrible, terrible natural disaster last week was because... They had made a pact with the devil um, to get the French out of there, and the devil made an agreement, and I think many of your listeners, like me, heard the sound clips of, of Pat Robertson saying this, and, you know, as he said it, he said it's a true story. You know, for me, again, with all due respect to people who um, believe what he's saying, I, I think he lives in a fairy tale, and he was not kidding. I came upon the story about a year and a half after it had happened and did all the research I could and contacted um, the Christian Broadcast Network, asked them the question, and if they could confirm it, uh, they completely evaded my question and <laughs> sent me um, something that I felt was like a cross between an Air Force form letter and a rather long sermon. And I, I repeated my question in a follow-up communication I'm still waiting for an answer to that one. <laughs> but, yeah, that is what he said. And I write about it at length here because, for me, I am completely intolerant of intolerance. And I was brought up in a Jewish family to understand that anybody was free to practice their religion in any manner they wished and that it was important enough that we should all be ready to fight for their right to do it as long as it did not cause harm. 
or intrude on the beliefs of anyone else. And unfortunately, in my way of seeing it, and, and may, people may criticize me as naive or uh, of the wrong faith or what have you, but the idea that there is one true path to God, if you will, or to uh, living a, a, a good and decent life, whether or not you're a Christian, you know, if you follow in Jesus' path, you can't go wrong. Whether or not you're a Buddhist, if you follow in Buddha's path, you know, uh, you will do very well. Um, and dogmatism, you know, is 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 a pathology for me. Um, more people have probably been killed by other people in the name of God than in the name of some political belief or, or where a line has been drawn into uh, the dirt to demarcate a division between countries. You know, it, it's madness compiled and topping madness and to superimpose it on a subject that is already so riddled with nonsense or the perception of, of nonsense um, does no one any good at all. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and, and like what we're dealing with here to lay it out, I guess, for the listeners and stuff is that, you know, if there's a disclosure event, we're talking about a whole contingent of people, large or small, it really doesn't matter, uh, who are convinced that the government is, you know, working with demons and fallen angels and Satan, if you will. So, I mean, this is serious business here, folks. It is. You've hit it on the head, Tim, and it was something that I really thought about for months, how best to express this very uh, upsetting and delicate thought, and ultimately several colleagues who are um, Christian fundamentalists, but who, you know, I respect, and they respect me, um, were willing, and I, I salute them all for it, to allow me to ask them a series of increasingly difficult questions. Um, and they were unflinching in giving me what I felt were straight and honest answers, ultimately very disturbing ones, uh, based on their beliefs. And the thought progression was essentially, if this government or any future government decides for any number of reasons that it not only does want to move forward in the way that other governments already have, and at the least um, declassify a certain amount of their UFO-related paperwork, uh, and at the most actually go on record and say UFOs are real and a percentage of them are truly anomalous and a percentage of those we are convinced at the highest levels of government, military, and science um, are representative from intelligences, technologies, and civilizations from off this earth or another dimension or what have you based on the fundamentalist interpretation. And this may be the same um, for Islamic fundamentalists. I'm still researching that right now that because there is no mention of extraterrestrials, for lack of a more descriptive term, in any of these holy books, that they can only be clever minions of the devil. And um, when I would say put forward, well, you know, NASA and other space agencies have tracked objects which uh, overwhelmingly seem under intelligent control from deep space into our atmosphere for decades now. A variation on the response that I've gotten was, you know, Satan is smart and he knows what we're thinking and 
what we're watching on TV and what's in popular culture. And, of course, he'll send, you know, his minions in their uh, craft out into deep space to come back to mimic what, you know, we think we're learning from Steven Spielberg and popular culture. But ultimately, let us just say theoretically that um, five years from now, whether it's President Obama or uh, another leader in this country, that this process goes forward and people are informed of it, there will be people in the fundamentalist religious community who will feel, at the least, that our government is completely naive and has no idea what it is dealing with here and has erroneously, if well-meaningly, identified this threat as extraterrestrial rather than demonic, or at the more extreme end, that the United States government is in league with the devil. Is it not possible that there will be elements within this community who feel, for the sake of their understanding of Christian teachings and doctrine and the path that they feel that Christ wants us to follow, that it is their responsibility um, as patriotic Americans and Christians to initiate acts of terrorism against the United States government, which seems justified because they are in league with the devil now. And what I put forward was for lesser reasons, namely to punish the bureaucracy for the terrible mishandling of um, the tragic, tragic way that the standoff in Waco, Texas, was dealt with by um, Janet Reno's Defense Department and the Clinton administration, that a self-identified Christian man named Timothy McVeigh, and unfortunately uh, we don't know who his uh, co-conspirators were, and I'm convinced that there were some. This was not somebody acting completely on their own. Uh, he was executed, um, unfortunately, before we had an opportunity to fully find out more. But um, he had a homemade bomb in a truck, which he brought and parked in front of the uh, Mura Federal Office Building in Oklahoma City and blew it up and murdered uh, 168 people, some of whom certainly were government workers, most of them. But there were also um, children in their daycare center and um, other folks as well. So would this be so out of the question? And every one of these folks that I asked uh, answered with a variation of sadly, no, it would not. It's not out of the question. And literally everyone, and none of them, you know, compared notes first, and some of them didn't know each other, but all of them came back very appropriately that this is not a real Christian person, although they may call themselves that. They're the way I understand it now. They're kind of Christian in their head, but not in their heart. And that any decent Christian, any real believer and follower of Jesus' teachings, were they to have wind of um, something like this, would do everything within their power, as would any of us, to um, make sure that it did not happen. So it is delicate stuff, and it's not fun, and it's not easy to contemplate. But unfortunately, this is what absolutely unbending, dogmatic, fundamentalist thinking, and as you noted, it extends well outside of uh, theological thinking and religious communities into secular life as well. Rigidity, you know, you will either snap or not bend. But um, you're not going to change because you know what you know is right and that your beliefs are the true beliefs. And whatever you pay lip service to, many people in their hearts know that 
the absolute specific strict path that they're following is the only path and that anybody on another path, even if they're in the same religion, um, is on a road to hell. You know, look at the tragedy of um, Shiite and Sunni Islam uh, or the terribly sad history of Ireland uh, with Catholic Irish under the heel of Protestant British and the blowback in the 20th century on that. Not good. Exactly, yeah. And before people discount this as, you know, well, these are yokels or something like that. I mean, folks, Think these again. could be people, yeah, these could be generals in the army or, or you know, these could be dudes with uh, their finger on the button. So yes. if we don't know who, <laughs> you know, th these beliefs run throughout the whole of uh, society and culture. So That's right. And you dangerous. reminded me, um, again, for me, uh, more and more, I separate UFO studies less and less from other important areas of um, you know social functions and uh, news you know there's that ivory tower idea of you know I've got to just do my work and it's got to be pure research and things but we live in the real world and one thing interacts with another this is the elephant behind the curtain that's been there you know for 62 odd years and it ain't going away and it controls a lot of what is unspoken in official circles as well as, uh, you know, social circles. There's a fascinating, absolutely riveting book out right now called The Family uh, about a number of congressmen and people in government who are extremely conservative, and I use that word advisedly because they're not real conservatives, who live together in Washington, D.C., and um, see themselves as... Uh, adherence to Christian theology of their very own brand, which is one that basically smiles down on them doing absolutely anything they want if they feel it's appropriate because they're them. It's really chilling to see what people in power, uh, how uh, power itself, um, to a degree, uh, along with a good healthy dose of ego and self-involvement, and not putting, you know, your constituents first, but your own power, pleasure, and uh, the fortunes that you're building are really sowing the seeds of tremendous, tremendous crisis in our, in our democracy. What do you think, Reverend? Once something has been approved by the government, it's no longer immoral. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Why can't I worship the Lord in my own way? By praying like hell on my deathbed. To take it to a meta level, what's been the reaction, I guess you could say, from the pro-disclosure exopolitics folks to the paper that you wrote and, 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 and this whole concept that, that they're overlooking this, this aspect of the religious fundamentalism? Because they are. I mean, I haven't heard yeah. anything from them regarding this. It's always it's going to be a good thing when it happens. When yeah. They never bring up the fact that there's a lot of problems that come up That's afterwards. Correct. The answer to your question is damned if I know. Absolutely none of them. Um, have contacted me um, with their feelings about this paper. And I have been doing all I can to disseminate it, to make it available to absolutely anyone at no cost, uh, inviting people to go viral with it. I'll be doing a talk um, in early March. I think it's March 7th, if that's the Sunday, at Disclosure Network New York, which is not a hardcore member of the disclosure movement per se, but that is their name, and they have great discussion panels um, 
every month where they invite speakers, and I've spoken for them before, and it's quite unusual in that they give me basically three hours with a break to sit around in a very informal circle with as many people as are there to put forward some of my thinking and then basically bounce it around the group and discuss it and argue it and turn it around and look at it from different points of view, which is a wonderful format and, and truly, truly uh, one of the best kind of, of forms that um, I've ever spoken in. Um, but I don't know, Tim. Uh, I wish somebody, you know, um, in, in the exopolitical movement or um, in the disclosure movement would get in my face about this or um, <laughs> respond or write a critique of the paper uh, or invite me to debate. I'm up, you know, for doing it on absolutely um, any format that they would like to take me on. I wish they would. I think it's, I wonder if it's just, you know, out of sight, out of mind or, or, or that kind of thing. But I Well, guess... yeah, and the fact is, as we all know, we're all inundated with so much highly specific information um, on UFOs and every other damn subject. Uh, we often, you know, keep our noses to uh, the grindstone and our horse blinders on and stick with the subject that we are specializing in. And, you know, in all fairness, I have not actually sent copies directly to key people in the disclosure movement. Perhaps I should, um, or, you know, within the exopolitical movement. And, again, uh, for anybody listening to this show who um, is, uh, you know, um, taking that point of view, um, please consider this an invitation. You can get in touch with me through Tim. And um, if we can arrange a, a public forum to discuss your ideas versus mine, let's go at it. Absolutely, yeah, that'd be great. And you raise another issue towards the end of the paper that I never really even considered, and that's just that in the event that there is disclosure, then we're adding in a whole new sort of black and white dichotomy into the culture, I guess you could say, where there's people that unite as Earth citizens, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. and then there's the people that are going to be you know, they don't want to do that. <laughs> so that's a whole new, you think we got enough problems with all the different factions that are fighting each other here on Earth, but then we're going to add in a whole new problem in the sense that there's going to be people that want to move on and, and become Earthlings, and then there's going to be people that, you know, aren't on board with that whole thing. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because in um, doing the research uh, for that paper on the United Nations 1978 initiative, I was smart enough and pack ratty enough to keep all of the printouts from uh, the Special Political Committee, and it was great having that material to um, use as part of my research. And they included statements from Jacques Vallée, uh, who, as many of your uh, listeners know, is not like a hardcore UFOs or real metal machines and there are aliens inside of them from Alpha Centauri. He allows for other possibilities as well, and he's either correct or incorrect, but I have great admiration for Dr. Valet, and, you know, we agree to disagree on certain things, and in other ways, I, I, I admire him just tremendously in his contributions to the field. But he talked about this very point before the Special Political Committee of the General Assembly in 1978, and said, you know, we have to deal with the fact that there are many people out there who feel that this is going to happen sooner or later, and it's going to possibly create um, a sense that we are all earthlings first, and second, we are 
men, women, Americans, Chinese, Canadians, you know, Indians or whatever, uh, that we're, our religion also is below the fact that we're a human being where many people would disagree vehemently. Aliens are no aliens. I'm, uh, you know, a white Christian American first or a black Baptist or uh, a Hindu Indian and, you know, uh, I, I love my country and where that line is drawn, I will fight to the death to defend, you know, my feelings, uh, my, my country and my people and the nationalism which, um, you know, I adhere to. So it will, it has the potential of creating a philosophical and ultimately political, not necessarily crisis, but uh, a real situation. There will be people who, you know, um, I, I've been so interested in the reactions of, of so many people I know to this film Avatar. Uh, I saw it a couple of weeks ago. I felt like a kid in there, you know, you're at a new level of technology. The story was kind of pat and black and white, but, you know, there was definite good and evil. The native characters uh, on the planet Pandora uh, were modeled after, you know, Native Americans and indigenous tribes at their best. And um, the human beings who were there to uh, essentially rape and pillage the natural resources of the planet were sort of corporate and Blackwater kind of bad guys. And um, at the same time, all that aside, the 3D and the level of, of computer technology was absolutely wonderful. But as usual, you know, when push came to shove, there were a few renegade humans who joined with the uh, the giant nine-foot blue people um, and, you know, fought for nature and God and love in their own terms. And uh, I, I won't say what happens for the eight people that are listening that possibly haven't seen the film yet. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. So. Oh, well, then all the better reason. It, it's, it's really grand entertainment. And whether you agree with the, you know, the storyline is your own business. But... In fact, um, the potential for one segment of humanity, should there come a time when we are faced with the undeniable reality of other intelligences coming and going seemingly with impunity, there will be meltdowns. There will be people who uh, want to work with them no matter what the cost because they're just in awe of how advanced they are. There will be others who fear and hate them and will fight them because they're different, they're strange, and what the heck are they doing on our planet? Uh, other people who will tentatively and you know hope for the best and begin to see that, yes, we are all human beings here, and I hope a dose of that has hit or reconnected with a lot of us, just remembering how lucky we are by a quirk of fate, happenstance, predestination, whatever your philosophy allows that we're here in America that whatever problems, you know, we're dealing with in our lives, <sighs> compared to these poor people in Haiti, um, which was a wreck to start with, we're doing pretty damn well. And this is one of those world-shaking tragedies that everybody should, at the least, count their blessings and send $10 to the Red Cross. So, yeah, there may well be a true drawing of a line down the center of humanity of those who want to defend what we have, traditional values. I'm going to not submit to these, you know, other beings. And, you know, I, I reference it in the paper, but I'm reminded of one of many of our favorite episodes of the classic Twilight Zones, 
called To Serve Man. And that has to do with uh, the friendly aliens welcome the Space Brothers landing at the United Nations and the giant seven-foot alien getting out and telepathically communicating to the leaders of the world and the UN that we are here, in fact, to cure cancer, to help you, you know, live for hundreds of years, to make the Earth a blooming garden, to share our technology with you, to take you on tours of our planet, to create a new golden age. And everybody's starting to cave to this. And wow, it is going to be a brave new world. And boy, isn't this great, except for one lone translator at the UN who has gotten a copy of one of their books. And when we come to the commercial, we find that he has broken the code for the title of the book, which is To Serve Man. And you know, the military adjutants and things, and the diplomats agree, that's not so bad, keep going. And at the end of uh, the wonderful 27 minutes is the uh, UFO, uh, I won't say that because it's now identified, a flying saucer is again lifting off to take another group of happy humans on a alleged tour of space. He comes running under and starts to scream words to the effect of don't go, don't go, it's a cookbook. And that is how we're going to serve man. So, <laughs> again, be careful with language and uh, watch what you eat. Um, you know, we exactly. don't know what their intentions are. And, of course, that's going to create anxiety, as it should. I don't see any more reason to trust them overall than I, I would uh, uh, the governments that have been being deceptive to us about what the true nature is that they know or denying it um, for all these years. Yeah, you just don't know who to trust. You know? <laughs> it's scary. Well, start by trusting your own intuitions and do your best to educate yourself. That's for sure. That's true. And, and uh, one point that you make earlier in the paper that, that sort of had been rattling around in my head for a while, too, was just that there's all this talk about disclosure and everything, but we don't even really know who knows what anymore because <laughs> it's been so long. Yes, you're right. I mean, we've probably gone through like three generations of people by now since the early, since, you know, since the Roswell incident, yeah. let's say. So it's like, you know, and a, and a massive sea change in the government as far as the National Security Agency and the rise of corporations and everything else. It's like, who, we don't even know, the government may not even know any of this stuff anymore. You're right, Tim. And it occurs to me sometimes that one of the things that they may be um, historically covering up is that in the intervening years, they really haven't learned that much. And there's a certain amount of, um, you know, macho male pride involved in the fact that we don't know a hell of a lot. And even what we do know, we're still unable to affect their comings and goings or to fully crack their technology. So, yeah, that is one of the many possibilities. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's a it's a big enigma. And, and, <laughs> and uh, oftentimes I think it's looked at in a very straightforward way that probably isn't the case, you know, so what we're going to do about it, I don't know. Well, exactly, and again, I, I think that the best thing any of us can do is be a human sponge. Um, soak up all you can. Be discriminating. You've got to be your own best skeptic, and I, I make a strong delineation here between skepticism and debunking, which often are thrown into the same pot. Uh, debunkers are, they know that it's not real. And because it can't be true, it isn't true. Therefore, poor, deluded idiots like us, who are probably just mega nerds who are <laughs> so lonely that we, you know, um, live these lives in, in saucer fantasies and thinking about shaking hands with aliens and all that stuff, we're either deluded, we're liars, 
were mental cases or, you know, we're looking for some ticket to our own special reality show or being on Oprah if we can write. But in fact, skepticism is very important to cultivate. There is so much erroneous information out there. And while um, the Internet is one step away from magic, which is, you know, kind of the definition of technology at this level of the game right now, and to digress for a little moment, it makes me wonder when we have these everyday toys and tools like our amazing iPhones and the Internet and cellular technology and digital technology, if that's what's filtered down to us in the lowly public sector, what in the name of all that's holy is classified at the highest levels technologically? My point here is simply that miraculous as the Internet is in terms of opening the world of information to us, it is so filled with screwy, goofball ramblings by any damn person that wants to put their opinion into the ether and have it reverberate for the rest of time. I'm kind of old-fashioned in that when I'm asked about, you know, how should I proceed in trying to educate myself on this, I'll say something pretty much like go to conferences, start to read the books, network with people discreetly, you know, build a circle of friends and colleagues that may take this seriously as well and maybe form an informal discussion group or you can find certainly some good people online, but build your library. There are more and more people in this world read less and less for pleasure or for business. And it doesn't even have to do with intelligence. It's actually extremely unnerving to me because um, I guess outside of um, my art collection, which is the closest thing I have to uh, a retirement fund, uh, my library is the most valuable thing I own. And I've been building it for many, many years and fell in love with books when I was a kid as well as reading. And without a first-class research library right here, and I'm looking at the spines of hundreds of books in my office right now, I would be incapable of doing some of the work that I do. And I think if you ask any of the people that you respect and admire in the field, you'd get a similar answer. We certainly network. We do our own independent and and uh, research you know, in tandem with each other, but we buy and read books. Yeah. And it doesn't just mean the important and good books. It's important to know what is specious or what is the enemy thinking or, you know, what is the nonsense historically out there as well. A good library should include um, stuff that you're in disagreement with as well as agreement. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Not enough folks are reading nowadays. It's It's unfortunate, especially... Yeah. In the UFO field, uh, they think they can just get the stuff online or hear a speaker. And, you know, there are so many good speakers and so many good authors and presenters, but you've got to do your own homework as well. And uh, if you are, I don't know, a decent, fairly grounded person, um, more often than not, uh, you have every reason to respect your own intuition and at least as often as not to trust it. Uh, at least until something comes along to educate you um, that you may want to revise your opinion. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you lay out a pretty interesting case, sort of a scenario for how you think the government should develop disclosure 
uh, in the paper. Without going into all that, because I know it's, it's detailed and, <laughs> and we've already gone a while here, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But um, do you get the sense that maybe that might be something that's going on, given especially the thing that stood out to me was uh, in the development of disclosure uh, scenario that you paint in the in the paper without using the word disclosure. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had to use it because I'm I'm lazy. <laughs> um, uh, you say that you know maybe uh, once the time feels sort of right they they'd sort of you know reverse course as far as the media goes and, and try and get the media to open up a little more mm -hmm. on on the UFO phenomenon, which I think has been going on over the last two or three years. Mm -hmm. So maybe we're seeing something. In the works. I don't know, though. I, I hate to get excited about anything. But. <laughs> um, well, the part of the paper that you refer to is not even so much uh, what I think should happen. It's theorizing about some of the machinations going on behind the scenes here and abroad about what may be happening. Okay. And it involves, you know, as you know from having read the paper, um, beginning with a, a, a small core committee branching out, vetting experts in different fields, uh, doing not just uh, security checks on them, but psychological background work, because these people will be under a certain amount of increasing stress, especially as they begin to have to read case histories and understand the depth and the seriousness of what I consider far and away the most disturbing aspect of the whole thing that UFOs are about here on Earth, which is embodied in the uh, alien abduction phenomena, mm -hmm. again, lack of a, a better term, which is real, which does happen, and likely we all know somebody that has been through it. And they may be very outspoken about it, or that may be in Dr. David Jacobs' terms, um, the secret life that they're living. But what I talk about toward the end is, at a certain point, a process that went into effect, either on its own or with a certain amount of manipulation behind the scenes in the summer of 1947. And I would date it to um, early July of 1947, where reporting in the Western press, uh, and certainly the flagship publications in America at the time, remembering this is before the advent of the golden age of television, when radio broadcasting and print medium, major newspapers were it, that one of several things happened. Either there was something that caught the public imagination as funny to maybe protect you or give you a, a, a bit of uh, whistling in the dark, fake courage uh, against what might be a very real um, threat and certainly unknown by just laughing at it. Even the term flying saucer itself, which goes back to, as I recall, I think the term actually came into being on June 24, 1947, mm -hmm. with um, Kenneth Arnold who was the man who kind of kicked it off, private pilot and businessman in Washington State, who observed seven or nine craft uh, moving along, not just at a lively speed, but he was able to calculate by the distance they moved from known point to known point on the mountain range that they were traveling at speeds of, I believe, up to 1,800 miles an hour, and that they were disc-like in part. And as he described them, 
or their movement, if I'm remembering correctly, is like stones skipping across the water. And I think it may well have been on that day that a reporter asked him, you mean like a, a flying saucer of a cup and saucer? And the name, of course, was Absolute Poison. And um, I have a wonderful political cartoon from the early 1950s of a bunch of aliens sitting in a large cup, which <laughs> is set in a saucer with the Earth in the background. And one of them is saying to the other aliens, I did too see a big round blue-green ball. <laughs> so, um, you know, we were kind of tarred with that. But there's another possibility. It's nothing I can prove. You heard me talk about it for the first time in public um, this summer when I, I spoke in uh, Exeter, New Hampshire. And by the way, we are hopeful that there will be a second and hopefully the beginning of an annual uh, Exeter, New Hampshire. Oh, UFO. that would be amazing. Yes, it would. That um, was such a good time up it there. It sure was. And it was truly town hall meeting style. It was, it was world class. And what a beautiful town. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, picture postcard. And I, I was one of the best audiences of just regular folks who were there. Independent thinking New Englanders, pragmatic. Uh, I think we had 350 people in the room, but I'm digressing, of course. And after showing uh, for about an hour along a very strict timeline, one New York Times article after another, and my argument in part was that the New York Times sort of being the flagship of Western journalism, set the tone for the spirit and the feeling that of the way this phenomena should be reported. From the get-go, they hit the ground running with sarcasm, innuendo, condescension, insulting, talk about pseudoscience, explanations. Oh, my Lord. They were just shameless. And then intercutting the newspaper headlines and comments and excerpts from the articles which were representative and, and I haven't selected them carefully because they, they fit into my theory um, with hardcore, bona fide, declassified various agency government documents literally all of which were talking about how damn seriously we were taking them and a good number that they might well be extraterrestrial and at the end I said as I'm going to say as we head into the end of our segment here I can't prove this. I have absolutely no evidence for it um, in any form that I could present in a court or to a conference. But over the past decades of really immersing myself in this subject with a, a special focus in part on media coverage and deception, it is not out of the question that shortly after things kicked in in early July or, or late June, key people in the Truman administration, either acting under the orders of the president or at least as likely on their own with the tacit understanding that they had the power to do so and also to preserve plausible deniability for the president, met discreetly with the movers and shakers and leaders and owners of the media industries. And that would have covered people like Hearst, um, the Copley Syndicate in Boston, um, David Sarnoff, who was in head of NBC, the Silsbergers and the Ox at the New York Times, mm -hmm. and let them know just enough to know that what was going on might well be a true phenomena and a potential threat from outer space and the potential for panic was real, and that it was their patriotic duty to simply set in motion this kind of reportage, 
which once set in motion brilliantly took off on its own. What editor or publisher or reporter would want to buck the system and write a serious UFO article? Now, I, I specifically speak in terms of mainstream journalism here. Small town papers and local publications all over the country overall carried these stories very straightforward, as they still do very often. But this was not that. And the pattern stuck. So the point you brought up was perhaps there will be a time, wonderfully if um, possible and uh, within our lifetimes, where this process can begin to be reversed and owners and publishers can signal their editors to signal their reporters that they should begin to begin with the point of view that this is serious and to take it seriously and to cover it like a real news story instead of like a wink-wink, nudge-nudge UFO news story, uh, which is the tacit understanding and the foxification of the news, so to say. So um, for me, all these possibilities are fascinating. They're all theoretical, but they're built on many years of study and observation, not just of ufology, but um, of human nature. And um, I stand by everything in the paper. Uh, I'm proud of it. Um, I hope it does make people think and spark some debate in this. And I am available to um, talk with any group that would be interested in having me if we can, you know, get me there and set some simple terms. And, um, you know, I, I thank you again for your kindness and insight and your friendship and taking the time to allow me to really spend a whole show um, bouncing off of you um, on the ideas and thoughts uh, that are expressed uh, in that paper. Absolutely, yeah, because I know you want to get this thing out there to people, and, and I know we have a huge listenership, so I'm hoping that more people will download the paper, folks, and, and check it out and read it. And Yeah. And, and, you know, it's thoughtful. That's what I really appreciate, too, about, about the paper and about this conversation. You can tell just from listening to you that you put a lot of thought into this stuff, and, and you're yeah. not just... Um, well, we know. never mentioned the title of the paper, which is Politics, Religion, and Human Nature, Practical Problems and Roadblocks on the Path Toward Official UFO Acknowledgement. This, this problem is with this disclosure thing, folks, that we don't hear about from the pro-disclosure crowd, and I think... Uh, the anti-disclosure crowd at times are sometimes shepherded by too vocal of people who, are, who don't really, uh, you know, who just take the hardline stance. Yeah, unfortunately, movements often become dominated by egos, uh, that wonderful rush of feeling when you have some power and you're on the floor pontificating, <laughs> uh, factions, you know, human politics. Exactly. And it's very important that people think for themselves on this, and the only way to really begin to do that responsibly is to educate yourself as well as possible to all the points of view out there and begin to vet them as carefully and as responsibly as you can. Yeah, that's what we've been saying here on the show for the longest time, too, is, you know, you got to do your own research, folks. Don't just listen to the program and then walk away and, and take whatever the guest says as gospel. I mean, because if you did that, you'd be changing your mind every two weeks or something because of the different guests we have on the show. So, Well, you know, <laughs> Tim, you didn't give me a chance to thank you for your kind introduction and to say one of the reasons I think you are doing some of the impo most important work in broadcasting on this is because you really are the right stuff, and you take that point of view seriously. And 
you're wonderful about cheerfully pummeling your listeners with it. So keep up the good work, my friend, and I'll look forward to coming back uh, without nearly as much time between this show and the last show. Absolutely. That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, before I let you go, I'll set myself up like that. Um, I did want to just bring up the uh, topic that kind of came up uh, coming out of the Exeter conference uh, and our conversations there mm-hmm. and your work with the Roswell thing is just sort of building more of a, a grassroots feel to this and having local communities, you know, sort of embrace their UFO roots and, and realize that, A, you know, they don't need to be ashamed of whatever event might have happened. We're talking like McMinnville, Exeter, yeah. Roswell, and, you know, that it could be good for their town or their economy and stuff and, and that, you know, that they need to maybe take a second look at, at the whole UFO idea because it's good for them and it's good for us. Yeah, I, you know, I thank you for bringing that up because this is a, an area which I, I never would have imagined in a thousand years I would have wandered into with my BFA in painting and film history that got me to this point as an investigative writer and has actually um, brought me to a point where I have the privilege of working with three municipalities in three different parts of the United States, uh, in beautiful Oregon and absolutely beautiful New Hampshire and beautiful New Mexico, where three distinctly different communities, each one with a remarkable documented UFO incident in its history, is doing what it can in a very, number one, uh, a mercantile sense, to use it as a way to draw business to their community and, and help their community, especially in, the, in these tough economic times. But each community, while having some fun with the idea, and I think it's not just perfectly okay, but a, a very human thing to want to blow off some steam around this subject. Let's face it. Exactly. The, the world of, of UFOs and Aliens and, you know, surrounding thoughts is so deeply ingrained, not only into American, but world popular culture. It's surprising that there haven't been, you know, more upbeat events around it before this. The um, McMinnville UFO Festival is a fine case in point. Exeter, New Hampshire, which had an absolutely world-class series of events in the mid-60s and is brilliantly written about. Um, in its best in a book called Incident at Exeter by the late John Fuller. In McMinnville in 1950, a, a farmer named Paul Trent took several photographs with a, uh, a Kodak camera of a disc-shaped, fully articulated object going over his farm property. Mr. Trent was a man who might not have had more than a high school education. He's a very decent man um, by all accounts and raised a, a good family, was happily uh, married, and I've met people that knew Mr. and Mrs. Trent. Um, He never asked for a cent for the pictures. One can criticize him as naive because he didn't copyright them, and they're probably in every UFO-related anthology (laughs) since. And in many senses, you know, they're a lot less dramatic than a lot of photos that may or may not be that we've seen since, but they are real. And when I say real, they are not pictures of a hubcap being thrown in front of a camera lens, whatever they are is of appreciable size and distance, but you can't miss it. I know 
Dr. Bruce McAbee, uh, naval, uh, now retired optical physicist, did something like 800 hours over the decades of photo an analysis, I, or, or a tremendous amount. Maybe that's the cumulative um, amount of uh, research that's been done on them since. But poor Oregon, which is one of the most progressive thinking and dynamic states in the country, is actually suffering more than almost any other state right now. The reason is um, their their primary focus is the timber industry, and housing starts are down to nothing. In fact, believe it or not, next to uh, Michigan, for obvious reasons, and poor Mississippi, because it's Mississippi, Oregon has the third highest unemployment rate in the nation. Oh, wow. And after 10 years, there is an appreciable little bell curve in the area, in and around McMinnville, because people go there for the festival and the conference, and it's a wonderful conference, and the festival is more fun than I can even explain, and I should be very specific here. When I say fun, it is fun without being mocking or sarcastic or mean-spirited, like what we're continuing to do in Roswell. It's very kid and family friendly, but there is also a wonderful opportunity to hear world-class speakers and educate yourself, and in the case of... Uh, uh, Roswell, of course, it's superimposed on the 4th of July weekend, so it's way off the hook and runs for four days. But McMinnville taught me a lesson. You know, um, uh, last year uh, I was uh, a panelist, and um, Kathleen Martin, Betty, uh, and Barney Hill's niece, uh, and um, wonderful Linda Moulton Howe and Stan Friedman were the speakers at the conference. And there were more than 500 people in attendance with quite a number of the uh, remaining family members of the Trents right there in the audience. And the balance between them was terrific. It's another reason why I hope, depending on where your listeners are, that if they can get to uh, McMinnville, Oregon, which is about an hour from Portland in mid-May, or to Exeter, and, and we're hoping very much that we'll be doing this the uh, first Saturday, I believe, in September, or of course to Roswell in early July, you will not only have a wonderful opportunity to learn more about this subject and to have a heck of a good time, but you'll actually have an opportunity to help three really decent American communities that are very different in their character, but high percentage of as nice of folks as you know in your town or city or village um, who are working hard to pay their bills. And if this subject can dovetail and help, I am so pleased to be involved in that. It's just a perk that I never would have imagined um, as, as a research scholar in this subject. Absolutely, absolutely. And like I was saying when I introduced you uh, at the Mass Mystery Weekend, I mean, this is unsung hero type work here for the field of ufology and uh, you definitely deserve more credit for that kind of grassroots work that you're doing because thank you brother you know a lot of people uh they're doing a lot of shouting but a lot of <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the uh it's the quiet nudgers behind the scenes like you that are really uh doing the important work i think so uh you know your your ufology's best kept secret i think <laughs> <laughs> well you're not helping that by bringing me on your show <laughs> and i really hope the exeter event comes off cuz i had such a good time last year me that too. it would be just uh, a blast to do it well again. Listen, Tim, one thing I'd like to do, and if I say it on the air, I, I guess I can't back down, is let me come back on the show, you know, a couple of times a year rather than 
you know, every couple of years, and uh, I'll be glad to go at it with you and any number of subjects, but I will certainly um, keep you posted one way or the other on uh, how things are developing at Exeter. Right now, we're just laying out the basics of how things are going to take place in Roswell, and well, I can't tell you um, what the theme of the conference will be yet or who will be speaking there, although I, I, it's coming together very nicely. I'm very excited with um, their plan of action, and uh, I also have been networking with the organizers in McMinnville, and uh, as soon as their speaking lineup is set, uh, we'll let you know that. And... Um, you know, generally just keep in touch and keep networking on this stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, this will not be, we're not going to wait another five years to have you back on the show. I think uh, doing something on a regular basis would definitely be an excellent uh, turn of events. So Let's we'll, do it. We'll have to definitely do that. All right, I've got to give up my title as best kept secret, though. <laughs> That's <laughs> I'm declassified. There you go, yeah. We've, we've disclosed you. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, we'll call it a night here because I have a feeling uh, we're going to be talking again real soon anyway. And uh, i got to thank you, Peter, not just uh, for coming back on the show, but just, as I said at the beginning, your kindness, your generosity, your, your welcoming me into the community with open arms way back five years ago now. Uh, six years ago, actually, is as scary as it sounds to me. Um, you know, uh, you, you're a great guy, and, and I really enjoyed the opportunity to spend so much time with you this past fall uh, when you came here. For the you and me both. Weekend. That was a very special weekend, not just for me, but for my dear friend and colleague, Nick Redfern, who also joined us at your wonderful home. It was an opportunity of a lifetime for me, and, and, and you know, it was sort of like, if you ever wanted to be in the UFO frat, that was probably the closest you could, <laughs> <laughs> the closest you could get to it, uh, all three of us hanging around watching TV and having beers and stuff. and Staying up late. Yeah, staying up late and <laughs> watching Saturday Night Live and... <laughs> It was uh, it was quite a good time, and, and uh, like I said, one of those weekends that just makes you friends for life. So I, I look forward to uh, talking to you again in the future yeah. and, and following what you got COVID all the time. And as I said, uh, you know, just to put you over one last time here as we wrap it up, uh, just such a thoughtful researcher. That's what I really appreciate, and, and, and I, I think the listeners are going to really appreciate it as well. We put a lot of thought into uh, – well, you put a lot of thought into what you had to say in, in the paper, and I think it's going to give a lot of listeners food for thought and – the opportunity to sort of take a second look at all this. So I think that's awesome. I hope so, Tim. And again, thank you for the opportunity to do so. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Peter Robbins for coming on the show and for allowing us to carry his paper, Politics, Religion, and Human Nature, Practical Problems, and Roadblocks on the Path Toward Official UFO Acknowledgement. You can get a copy of the PDF at Ben All of America, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. Totally for free. Peter has been amazingly gracious enough to allow us to spread it out there for everybody to get a chance to read. So definitely want to check that out. Peter does not have a website, though I'm under the impression he has one in the works. So for now, we'll just tell you to go check out the PDF copy of his paper at Ben All of America. And you'll be hearing from him in the not-too-distant future here on BOA Audio. And you can always check him out once a month on Karen Dolan's great podcast, Through the Keyhole, where he sits in with Richard Dolan once a month and just jams with him. It really is one of the more enjoyable evenings of esoteric discussion every month, so you want to check that out for sure. 
Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And I got a couple of emails here for you. One that we've been holding on to for a while, one that's just kind of funny. So we'll dive right in. The first one comes from John, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I'm sure you've heard this one by now, but I've just listened to the Redfern and Bishop podcast and found it very enjoyable. But as a longtime science fiction fan, I'm turning 60 on Friday, I was astounded that Greg ascribed Sturgeon's Law to Robert A. Heinlein. R.A.H. gets plenty of well-deserved credit for his work, but let's not give him credit for the quotation, 90% of everything is crap. I wrote this blog post on Sturgeon in May. And then he includes a very lengthy URL, which I've helpfully plugged into the tiny URL machine. So here is the new URL for John's blog post, tinyurl.com slash 511BOAA. So go to that to hear more from John about Sturgeon. And then he goes on to say, I note a bit of disguised frustration in the voices of Nick and Greg these days. All I can say is, don't give up. There is something to all this. I have known it since seeing a classic amber-glowing domed flying saucer up close off Egypt Beach in Situate in 1965. Maybe you need an experience to make it real. Best regards, John. So there you go. Thanks for writing in, John. Folks, if you want to check out his blog post, once again, the URL for that is tinyurl.com slash 511BOAA, all about sturgeon and presumably clearing up the true source of the quotation, 90% of everything is crap. I don't have much to say about that, so just I will pass along the information to you folks out there. Regarding the disguised frustration in the voices of Nick and Greg on the Year in Review episode, I'm going to defend them here a little bit and just say, you know, I think we were all kind of tired by the end of the three-hour conversation. We had been talking quite a bit about what had been a downer year and really a downer decade for ufology. I think that, coupled with the marathon length of the conversation, sort of wore us all down towards the end. Uh, I was definitely feeling it, and I know they were too. So I wouldn't read too much into their tone of voice or their answers toward the end of that episode. We were all just beat, you know, right in the thick of the holiday season, getting ready for the new year, and kind of just tired. So... That has more probably to do with their tones towards the end of that episode than really their take on the world of ufology in the present time. And they really kind of went out of their way to make that point towards the end of the interview as well. So don't read too much into it. Really, I think it was just merely a remnant of uh, the recording process, let's say. You know, just a long conversation. We were all kind of tired. Thanks for writing in, John. Hopefully I cleared up. Uh, the disguised frustration situation, and thank you for clearing up the Sturgeon's Law quotation. Next email comes from Natalie, no hometown listed, merely Natalie, and here's what she has to say. I wanted to let you know how much I enjoy your show. I was listening to the Christopher O'Brien episode when you mentioned that your listeners are demanding more stories. I understand that you are trying to go for different angles than other shows, but stories about the happenings will always be essential to your listeners. Thank you for everything you and your staff do. P.S. It is refreshing and wonderful to hear a host cuss. Loves it. Please continue the fucking cuss words. Sometimes there are no other words to express yourself. Signed, Natalie. Natalie, you are going to run afoul of BOA Audio listener Madge, who wrote in last year to really uh, 
rap me on the knuckles with regards to my swearing on the show. I promised that I would not swear as much, but I feel like I am swearing more than ever. But that's the benefit of doing an internet radio show and having the sort of loose style that we do here on BOA Audio. As Natalie says, sometimes there are no other words to express yourself other than those wonderful four-letter words. I apologize to Madge. I'm sorry about the cussing, but I actually do get a lot of emails from people who enjoy it. So, you know, we're trying to find the right balance here on the show. With regards to the stories about the happenings, I totally agree with you, Natalie, and I have no problem with that. I actually really appreciated the listener who wrote in demanding more stories because I want to know what the people want to hear, and when I find that kind of stuff out, it helps me to shape the show as we go forward to what the listeners want to hear. So hats off to the listener who wrote in last year asking for more happenings. I totally agree, and I feel like it's added an extra element to the show that we just didn't have before we started sort of uh, opening the door to more stories. So there you go. Thank you for writing in, Natalie. Thank you for writing in, John. Awesome BOA Audio listeners who have contributed here in BOA Audio listener feedback. What about you? You got something to say? You want to get in touch with us and have your email read here at the end of the show? That's simple. There's three methods. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, or you just go to Banal of America and click the contact button. It's pretty easy to find. And the final method is you join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. You can find that by also going to Banal of America and clicking the forum button. So it's pretty easy to find. Great group of folks there. Tons of folks been joining in the last few months. The community has really begun to expand in a big way. But we're always looking for new folks to come on over to the US of E and join up in the fun. So those are the three methods. Email, contact button, and forum. Any of those, as well as Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, and all the rest, will get your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, let me thank the amazing and esteemed, as well as infamous, BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. we got a lot going on at BOA. Let me roll through what has been posted in the last 10 days or so to catch you up to speed. Marla Pena's got unidentified flying stuff, where she looks at the bizarre flying men phenomenon of Mexico. Anyone who's seen these pictures has been completely blown away by it, but Marla Pena takes a thoughtful look at the unidentified flying man phenomenon down there and really sort of uncovers what's really going on down in Mexico with that strange phenomenon. It's a must-read for anybody who's seen those unidentified flying humanoid pictures. That's Shadow of the Shinigami under the title of Unidentified Flying Stuff. Uh, then we had Leslie's Gray Matters Ufology 101 for bloggers and forum posters. Leslie is a big-time player in the online esoteric scene and really lays it out there for folks who've always kind of wondered what the hell's going on with these various blogs and forums and all that good stuff. It's sort of a look behind the curtain at Online Esoteric, a very enjoyable edition of Leslie's Gray Matters, Ufology 101 for bloggers and forum posters. 
and then just posted today at BOA, Ghostly Gurus is the latest edition of A.M. Murphy's Not Always So. And in this, she talks about Carl Jung and his spirit guide that went by the name of Philemon. Very strange stuff, very bizarre material from A.M. Murphy in Not Always So, under the title Ghostly Gurus. And that's at BOA right now as well. Plus, coming up this weekend, we got a text interview with Nick Redfern from Richard Thomas in his latest Sci-Fi Worlds. And I've already got my hands on Rochelle Hawks' Medusa's Ladder for next Friday. So you're going to want to come on back for that as well. Tons of stuff cooking at Benal of America. The BOA staff has stepped up to the plate in a big way here in 2010. As we say week in and week out here on the program at the end of the show, if you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. And if you're a first-time listener to the show and you missed the URL earlier on in the episode, it is as follows, www.binnallofamerica.com. Dot com. Check it out. Usually here at the end of the show, we ask you to make a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio, but much like last week, I really don't feel quite right yet asking you folks to make donations in light of the horrendous disaster over there in Haiti. So once again, I'm asking you folks, if you feel like making a donation, make it to one of the many charitable organizations who are helping out those poor, afflicted Haitian people who are really suffering right now as a result of that devastating earthquake. I'll be around for a while. You can always come back and donate to BOA sometime down the line. That would definitely be appreciated. But right now, there are definitely more pressing concerns in the world than my little podcast. So do what you can to help those folks out there who are definitely, definitely in need of our help. Next week on the program, I don't have much to say about it because I haven't taped the interview yet. Our guest is going to be Christopher Knowles, author of the book Our Gods Wear Spandex, takes a look at the world of esoterica in comic books and how the occult shaped the world of comics over the years. It's really a fascinating book, a very enjoyable read, and I'm looking forward to what is definitely going to be a thought-provoking conversation with Christopher Knowles. We're also going to talk about his groundbreaking blog, The Secret Sun. And I know that blog has become quite a cult phenomenon over the last year here in Esoterica. And I've already heard from tons of folks who want to hear from Christopher Knowles on BOA Audio. You're going to get your chance next week on the program. And on that note, we'll close the book here on another edition of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks once again to Peter Robbins. Thanks as well to John and Natalie for writing in for BOA Audio listener feedback. And most of all, of course, huge thanks to the great folks out there who are listening right now. The BOA Audio listeners, you guys are the best. If not for you, this show would have shut down a long, long time ago. Thank you so much for your support and for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.